It's Agarts from Horse and Buggy Land. Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an Agarts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me, and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down, and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. They're at it again, the Amish. They're gambling. Yes, that's right. Gambling. Now, you may think gambling is strictly forbidden in the Amish religion, and it is. But whatever is strictly forbidden has a sneaky way of boring right into the very fabric of a culture. Before anyone realizes it, there it is. Traditionally, you go to Bulltown to the basement of the Catholic Church to gamble. Bingo! The basement is dark and the priest leaves the lights off on purpose, just in case an Amish person wants to slip in. Then no one knows who is taking part in the vice. The free Martintown gambling occurs at the Agitator, the local appliance store in town. We all go to the Agitator to buy our washing machines, dryers, and refrigerators. They even carry gas grills. The English buy the electric washing machines and dryers. The Amish buy gas-powered washing machines and refrigerators. The Amish don't buy gas dryers. Instead, they use solar dryers, stringing a piece of rope between two trees and hanging their wash on the line. The restless Amish buy gas grills. Not exactly a forbidden item, but not exactly a sanctioned one either. I can usually tell when an old order Amish family is about to convert to Mennonite, a more liberal sect. First, the men build a wraparound deck around the house. They may add a wheelchair ramp to give the impression that they will soon be taking care of their elders. But then a gas grill appears on the deck just outside the kitchen door. Mm-mm. The smell of barbecued chicken floats through the neighborhood. Then a teenager dashes out the door, crosses the deck, and hops in a car. A black car, but a speeding car dashing down the road, rock music blaring. Yep, that's the order of rebellion. Deck, grill, car. Desires have a way of building. So it wasn't too hard for the agitator to start their betting pool in Free Martintown. Every 30 to 40 years, the agitator plugs in one of their washing machines, and the townspeople come in and place bets on how long it can run without a repair. In January of 1986, the agitator plugged in a Maytag washer, and we all lined up outside on the sidewalk to come in and write down a date and time on a little slip of paper. July 5th, 1986, 10 a.m., I wrote, and dropped the paper in a cardboard box. 
No washing machine, no matter how good, can run day or night for more than six months without pooping out, I thought. Jake Bontrager, the bishop, stood in line behind me and guessed the contest would end in three months. You people with your electricity, Jake said, shaking his head. But Jake, why are you entering the contest then? You know the prize is a Maytag microwave oven, I said. Oh, we can run that on the generator, Jake said, exiting the agitator and untying his horse and buggy from the hitching post. A few years after that, I ended up driving Jake to Des Moines to appear before the State Racing and Gaming Commission. A developer from Chicago had bought the Paul Yoder farm on the highway and intended to build a big casino there. The rule was that casinos in the state needed to be built on rivers, like the Mississippi or the Missouri, where they historically belonged. The Yoder farm wasn't on a river, not even a tributary, not even a creek. So the Chicago folks were already busy digging a ditch to connect with the Amish River, and they were going to put that casino right next to it, a riverboat gambling casino on a ditch. Well, that was one way of getting around the state law, but the letter of the Amish law was no vices like gambling. Ditch the ditch, the signs began to pop up in front of Mennonite houses on the highway, households that were supposed to stay out of politics. Roll the dice way on down the road. Ban the one-armed bandit. We don't want the traffic, Jake told the Racing and Gaming Commission, and we don't want the lowlife that comes with a casino. The Gaming Commission decided to put the issue up for a vote in Chimeric County. The Amish, of course, don't vote. Jake's appearance before the commission was an exception that showed just how concerned the group was about the casino. In the end, though, the Amish had to just sit at home and wait for the English to decide. The English thought that the casino would bring revenue to Fremartin Town with tourists eating at our local restaurants and shopping in our antique stores. The resolution passed, but now the gamblers come to the casino to gamble and to eat in their restaurant there and to shop in their gift shop. The gamblers never leave the building, never having a thought for our bakery or diner or for antiques. Free Martintown did receive funding from the casino for a couple of park benches and a hit-or-miss Amish concrete quilt in the sidewalk. For that, we're grateful. Jake and I were both wrong about the Maytag washing machine at the agitator. It ran for two and a half years, day and night, no repairs. Shorty Long, who runs the shoe repair shop, won that one, carrying his microwave back to his shop where he hoped to warm up shoe leather in it, making the material more pliable. And now the agitator has announced another washing machine contest. Apparently, the folks in Free Martintown have been complaining that their appliance store no longer carries those long-running Maytags. Maytag, manufactured down the road in Newton, had closed the factory 
which then converted to producing wind turbine blades. And then the factory stopped even making the blades. So how are we to trust these new Japanese washing machines we saw in the store window? How long will they last? Didn't that same company make cell phones? I didn't want to text my washing machine. The agitator assured its customers that the Japanese machines would last as long as the Maytags. To prove it, they plugged one in and started a new contest. And there Jake and I were again in line, writing down our guesses on little slips of paper. This time, the prize was one of Ruby, the gross mommy's shoe fly pies. This time, I guess, two years. But nah, Jake said, that cheap thing would never hold up like a Maytag. He's stuck with a guess of three months. For now, we're all waiting, sitting on those park benches and waiting to see who placed the best bet. Have Ruby, the gross mommy, here to give us her recipe of shoe fly pie. For most people in Free Martin Town, have bet that soon, very soon, her pie will be awarded to someone who entered that agitator contest. Hello, Ruby. Oh, hello, Ruby. You've become quite famous for your shoe fly pie. Well. People seem to eat it a lot at funerals. Ruby, I'm sure it's a hit at weddings, too. The quilt show, the relief sale, all sorts of special occasions. Tell our listeners about shoe fly pie. What's in it? It's a pie. A regular pie with molasses filling. It used to be a coffee cake. Really? A coffee cake? Yes, we'd eat it for breakfast. Then, since Amish are good at making pies, we put the coffee cake in a pie crust and called it shoe fly pie. Oh, that has some poetry to it. Now, now you're the poet, not me. But I do think it sounds better than shoe fly coffee cake. Oh, some still eat it like coffee cake, but I don't think it sticks together very well that way. You have to put it in a bowl, then pour milk on top. You have to eat it with a spoon. And how, how did the shoe fly part get into its name, Ruby? Well, you know what it's like around here in August. Put all that molasses on a table outside or inside, and you have flies. You have to shoo the flies off of the pie. Well, of course. You don't want them landing on it. <laughs> then you'd really have to shoo fly pie. Oh, so tell us how you make shoe fly pie from scratch. Well, first you have to take 
a nice stand of sorghum. You've got to harvest it before the first frost. Chop down the canes with a sharp corn knife. Then we stack it up on a wagon, throw a little, little boy on the top, maybe several little boys on the top to hold down the canes, you know, then hitch up the horse and take it down the road to Chup's Mill where it's ground. The horse attached to the stone going round and round and Ruby, Ruby, that's all very interesting, but could we get to the pie recipe? This is the recipe. You said you wanted to know how to make it from scratch. Okay, so so what do you do? First you make the crust? No. You go back to the chups to pick up your jars of molasses. Toot toot! They blow the whistle in the boiler room where the raw mash cooks down. Toot toot! Then they sift the sorghum through clay. Not, not just any clay, not just a bunch of mud. Has to be right. They dig the clay out of the hills here. And soon the dense, sticky stuff is ready for the jars. Mm -mm. Okay, so then you go home and you make the crust. No. You hitch up your empty wagon, and then you go home with your jars. And preheat the oven. <laughs> you start a fire in your cook stove box and you hope it reaches hot on the gauge on the stovepipe. Okay, then you make a pie shell. With lard. I've told you the only way to make anything is with lard. Then combine a cup of molasses with three-fourths cup of hot water. One cup molasses, three cups hot water. And then three-fourths teaspoon of baking soda. Now, don't mix these things up. Some people do, and then they're in a terrible mess. Whisk in a beaten egg into that. Then pour the whole thing into the pie shell. And the crumble on top? The crumble. All right. Combine one and a half cup flour and one cup packed brown sugar. Mix well. Then cut in another one-fourth cup of lard. Sprinkle that on top of the molasses filling. Mm -mm. Then you bake it. Yes, you bake it in the hot oven for about 15 minutes and let the oven cool down and continue to bake for another 30 minutes. Wow, so Ruby, what does it mean to you that your pie will be the reward for this agitator contest. Well, I think they have the title of that contest just right. The Agitator. I've been reading the paper today. This weekly rag used to be called the Free Martin Town Meteor Beacon Newspaper. Everyone in town subscribed, mostly to find out who died, but then too many people died in the surrounding towns that had their own newspaper.
Bulltown had the bugle. Lone Prairie had its pioneer. And Creekside had its courier. All these newspapers finally folded in the free Martintown paper. The editor resisted renaming the paper the Free Martintown Meteor Beacon Bugle Pioneer Courier newspaper, and he didn't want to play favorites, so he simply renamed it The Paper. The Paper has an interesting section that prints the news of yesteryear. There was an entry this past summer from August 24, 1916, that caught my attention and was a testament to the resilience of the era. From the paper. The safe in the Dow City Post Office was blown open by yeggs and robbed of a small amount. John Cody of Manson died of blood poisoning after receiving a slight cut on the thumb. F.H. Vinyl, a farmer near Kellogg, ran over and killed a wolf while driving his car near Monroe. Alva Pattern of Villisca confessed to burning his home for the purpose of collecting insurance money. Willie Hughes, near Ida Grove, was seriously injured when a pitchfork went eight inches into his body. The safes of the Cherokee Creamery Company at Cherokee were blown open by yeggs and robbed of $56. Ed Edwards, a salesman at Sioux City, while driving his automobile, was knocked senseless by a flying dove. Dr. Moore of Washington was injured when he stepped into an open elevator shaft and fell three stories. A. L. Husney of Muscatine narrowly escaped death while digging a sewer when he was buried in dirt up to his chin. In response to all these tragedies, it appears a great rush of poetry was submitted to what was then called the Free Martintown Meteor Beacon newspaper in 1916. The poetry seems to have greatly irritated the editor. He announced, Correspondents are warned not to send us any poetry for publication. The people won't read ours, and we're not going to make a poetical reputation for anyone else. That's the way the paper stands on the question, and we second the motion with emphasis. Of course, a real good poem on a special subject is an exception to the rule, and we're glad to publish them. But one of these moody jumbles of ignorance and plagiarisms written during a daydream on a moon stair with a cat yowling on the back fence or a lovesick period of blubbering that would scare a buzzard off of a dead horse, will receive no welcome here. We don't maintain a comic page. Well, okay, okay. So now it's time for our listeners to gamble. As of this podcast, we are opening the Great Amish Belt Loop Bad Poetry Contest. The reward is $100 and a leather belt made by the local Amish harness maker. Here are the rules. Number one, your poem must be bad, really bad. 
all good poems will be immediately rejected. Number two, your poem is limited to a hundred words. Number three, your poem must contain these phrases, a cat yowling on a back fence and a buzzard on a dead horse. Number four, the entry fee is $10. Pay through the donation button on the Ag Arts website. Number five, leave your name, phone number, email address, belt size, and your poem on the speak pipe button on the Ag Arts website, www.agarts.org, A-G-A-R-T-S dot org. Speak slowly and enunciate. Number six, the top bad poems will be broadcast on a future podcast where we will announce the winner and the belt size. Number seven, the deadline, January 15th. Number eight, our judge will be Ruby, the gross mommy. So get those entries in, folks, who couldn't use $100 and a new belt to carry them into the new year. Arts from Horse and Buggy Land was produced by Rick Brewer of Brouhaha Audio Productions. And we had support this week from the Iowa Arts Council. We also had support from the Werner Ellathorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation and the Calio Levine Fund, who also helps us pay for our farm-to-artist residencies. We welcome your support. Simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that donate button. The same button you'll hit when you enter our bad poetry contest. And we'll go out today with Shoe Fly Pie from the Deep Dish Divas from Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. If you want to do right by your appetite, if you're fussy about your food, take a choo-choo today, head to Iowa, and we'll put you in the happiest mood. With Shoe Fly Pie, an apple pan dowdy makes your eyes light up, and your tummy say, howdy, Shoe Fly Pie. An apple pan dowdy, I can't get enough of that wonderful stuff. Shoe Fly Pie, an apple pan dowdy gets your mouth to water, makes your taste buds rowdy. Shoe Fly Pie, an apple pan dowdy, I can't get enough of that wonderful stuff. Oh, honey. I love it when you bake, but honey, I really don't want cake. Ooh, baby, for our sakes, why don't we heat up the oven and bake some ever-loving? Shoe fly pie, an apple band dowdy makes the sun come out when the heavens are cloudy. Shoe fly pie, an apple band dowdy, I can't get enough of that wonderful stuff.
makes your eyes light up and your tummy say howdy. She fly pie and apple pan dowdy. I can't get enough of that wonderful stuff. She fly pie and apple pan dowdy. Get your mouth to water, makes your taste buds rowdy. She fly pie and apple pan dowdy. I can't get enough of that wonderful stuff. Oh, honey, I love it when you bake, but honey. I really don't want cake, ooh, baby. For our sakes, why don't we turn on the oven and bake some ever-loving? Shoe fly pie and apple band dowdy makes the sun come out when the heavens are cloudy. Shoe fly pie and apple band dowdy. I can't get enough of that wonderful stuff. You know I'll never get enough of that wonderful stuff. Yum, yum.